0: The content that's explicit will not come with a warning except for this. So bear in mind what I am saying. This show is explicit content. It's Tuesday, July 5th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I have bad news on top of the bad news about the tragic news of the Highland Park, Illinois shooting that killed six. It's that another shooting victim has succumbed to injuries. The death toll is now seven. I also believe that it will turn out to be one of those shootings that falls into the category of no law could have stopped it. Well, no law that could plausibly pass in America. This certainly wouldn't have happened to Japan or England. Evidence has also emerged that the shooter attempted suicide and had a number of weapons taken away when he was a teenager more than three years ago. The state does have a fairly robust red flag law on the books, but someone has to trigger the red flag, be it a court officer, police, a mental health professional. The state of Hawaii even allows a coworker to do it. So I don't know that a new or different law would have prevented someone with this past to acquire weaponry in the future. Maybe it should. I don't know if it would have. The rifle used has not been confirmed but the spokesman for the Lake County Major Crime Task Force says it fires quote high velocity rounds similar to an AR-15 which is really just saying it's a rifle of course it is AR-15s don't have a higher velocity than other rifles rifles that don't fall under the assault rifle or semi-automatic label. In fact, it's the pistol grip on the AR-15 and its variants that sets it apart, not as a killing machine per se, but mostly as an attraction for mass shooters who use it as they walk from room to room, say, or in one mass indoor setting where they are on the same plane as their victims. Snipers are usually different or had been traditionally until the Las Vegas shooter, which used AR-15s and AR-10s extensively. He modified them. America has shown an unwillingness to commit to a mass banning of the AR-15. Some municipalities passed laws. One such municipality was Highland Park, Illinois. But that doesn't prevent a 22-year-old from walking one town over and buying his rifle there. The shooter was of age, was not mentally ill, and also, and this is very unusual, he was actually trying to get away with the crime. When I spoke to Dr. Jillian Peterson of the Violence Project, she said that the majority of mass shootings were designed to be terminal events, meaning the shooter wanted to be killed or be captured. This one did not. That's also like the Parkland shooter who attempted to blend into the crowd to make his escape. This shooter, based on the videos I saw that you may have seen and hearing his rapping, He is in the dark nihilistic lineage, more of a movie villain than of other mass shooters. I don't wanna make generalizations about facial tattoos, but this shooter seemed to be cultivating an image of menace and intimidation. And like so many of them, he was scarily thin. I have no idea how this plays into the psychology or if it does, but I have noticed this parade of spectral young men, these lost attenuated souls. Here's the Virginia Tech shooter, according to the Washington Post. In the days before the shooting, he ventured out at night to the campus gym, lifting weights to beef up his skinny frame. The Uvalde shooter was skinny and picked on, and he sought out for a brief time boxing lessons to end this. The Parkland shooter. Nicholas was a peculiar boy. He was particular about food. He was socially awkward. At five foot seven and 120 pounds, the slight Nicholas was bullied. Records indicate that from the Sun Sentinel and the Sandy Hook shooter was 72 inches tall, six feet tall and weighed 112 pounds. These wraiths, these deadly boys, these horrible authors of each successive chapter of mass violence. I do not know what to make of it. There are exceptions to the body type. There are many sickly, scary, antisocial, shitposting, gun-obsessed, MAGA-curious young men who will never commit such an act. And not all of the shooters I mentioned or shooters in general fall into all of those categories, but so many of them do. And I would say when we're talking about that category of young man, Sickly scary, antisocial, shitposting, gun-obsessed, MAGA-curious, I don't think it would hurt to intervene in their lives in general. The problem is, those traits of the ones I mentioned, one or two are not seen as dysfunctional, and another couple of those adjectives are flat out celebrated. And that is as much a problem as the unconscionable death toll we're all forced to deal with. On the show today, I spiel about the president fighting gas prices with tweets and the governor of California fighting inflation with inflation. But first, when the Supreme Court ruled on Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, they created a huge win for conservative policy goals. They may also have engendered a backlash. My next guest, Sarah Longwell, has been talking to voters in formal focus group settings, trying to see if and how minds have changed. The publisher of The Bulwark and the host of The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell, up next. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block, and indeed there is. And me and Jay, the neighbor, and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say... I don't want to make this too tawdry, but we lust, or perhaps we gvel. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures the Defender family... Features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com Defender. How will the recent ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson women's health play out in the electorate? I will give you the answer. This is a spoiler alert. No one knows. But if anyone knows, or comes close to knowing, or can construct the apparatus for which we will know, it is Sarah Longwell. Sarah is the publisher of The Bulwark. She is the focus group host that is a name of an actual series of focus groups but also a podcast called the focus group and about the focus groups and we will talk about abortion we will talk about focus groups and i also want to talk about the the hearings the january 6th hearing sarah welcome to the gist
1: hey thanks for having me
0: so i know with the leak of the Dobbs memo, you got some indications of what people were thinking. And I also know that it wasn't top of mind even for the persuadable women who you voted for. Um, however, uh, upon hearing that episode of the folks group, and I recommend that everyone does, Rachel Vindman was the guest. When you dug a little deeper, tell me if I'm right, you found that while the women weren't offering this as a top, of mind concern, and this was back before the Alito decision was confirmed, I think you found that maybe it was more concerning to persuadable women than even they realized.
1: That's exactly right. And and, and it's it, it leads you to kind of a, I think, an important conclusion, which is that you gotta, you gotta make this a, you gotta put this in people's heads as a top issue. Now, now that the ruling has come down, I do think that that offers like a higher level of certainty. One of the weird psychological impacts of that leak, and hopefully someday we'll find out who did leak it. Um, but one of the weird psychological impacts was you spent all this timing, like, is it true? I don't know if it's true. So, like, how seriously do I have to take it? How freaked out do I need to be? And and I think that confirming it now, um, you know, we have we have focus groups subsequently, um, and so you know, now we're getting sort of a different reaction. But at that point, um, we just had the leak. And uh, but so, so when people were saying, you know, what they cared about, it was like inflation, it was the economy, 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 healthcare. Um, but yeah, when you dig in and you ask people, well, what do you think if this, this is repealed? And these were, these were Trump 16, Biden 2020 voters. Um, and they were extremely alarmed. And it one of the things that is is coming up in the focus groups that I'm finding very interesting is how many people identify personally as pro-life and are still very concerned about eliminating Roe. And I think that that is just when something is settled law and people, it's one thing to sort of be pro-life in the context of this right being protected, right? Where you can be like, well, I'm pro-life. This is like how I orient myself. A lot of it's cultural, a lot of it's religious, but they sort of count on it being there as a right. Um, and so the it being taken away, I think, is really having a different kind of impact on people in its practical application.
0: Right. And I think from what I heard in the focus group, and that was the first focus group, and maybe you could uh, tell me some results if you've talked to people since the decision was confirmed. I think the things that moved the voters weren't necessarily um, the most controversial aspects of abortion. It was if, if... you politicians were to talk about examples where women were bleeding and clotting and a doctor was resistant to intervene. That could be very motivating to people. I think even the phrase ectopic pregnancy, if that is used correctly and accurately, that could also move many voters, voters who might not have been identified as being particularly pro-choice to begin with.
1: Yeah. So so this is something that has is coming through loud and clear to me that is pretty interesting. I think the focus groups, which is, you know, everybody kind of says like rape, incest, life of the mother. Uh, and there's these like ways that we talk about things that are kind of rote. But if you get into the particular stories, like in these groups of women, the solidarity around this issue actually forms pretty quickly. And 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 what people focus on, like the stories that women tell are about very complicated heart-wrenching situations where people had to make horrible choices in the face of just catastrophic m- medical decisions around pregnancy and i think that this is this gets lost and if if democrats are going to prosecute this case, which I think they have to do. It can't just be organic. That's why I always make the distinction between people not going there when you ask them an open-ended question versus how animated they get when they talk about it specifically is you've got to prosecute that case and you've got to talk about these personal stories because women, I, I feel this way. So I've gone, I've got two kids, um, and actually my, my wife had them, but like, everybody's got stories about either how hard it was to become pregnant or they know some, they themselves, or they know somebody who had a, a complicated issue with their. And so the idea that the government would get in there and that there would be somebody saying you can't attend to this for some reason is super scary. Cause once you kind of cross into your late twenties, thirties, like, and you're now me 42, you know, tons of people who've just had situations and you yourself have seen um, yeah. How complicated it can be.
0: Yeah. I got to say, I have two kids also. I never felt to clarify that my then wife had them, but it just, it's just just interesting <laughs> that, I know that you say that. So how this might play out in a race is if Democrats are to talk about this with, with sensitivity and authority and Republicans are to fall back on the bromides, the talking points, not to be able to successfully navigate Uh, and give the impression that they're knowledgeable and they care about issues like ectopic pregnancy, that definitely is an opening. It may even be an opening in states that already have abortion bans with supposedly the support of the public.
1: Yeah. So where I think that that the conversation is going to have to be to sort of win this conversation is that both sides are going to try to prosecute the other side at its most extreme Right. right, so Republicans are going to try to say, "Well, Democrats want you to have unlimited access that you can just abort a baby a day before it's going to be born," um, which does not happen that often. But when Democrats kind of dig in and they refuse to say that there's that they're you know that that's um, you know, that's very uncomfortable for people. Like you like most people are kind of in this space of look, I think that there should be limitations on when you can get an abortion, but also I think you should be able to get one, especially early on. And so understanding that, you know, I think Democrats need to sort of dispense with the like we got to pack the courts and we got to be able to have, you know, the safe, legal and rare thing worked for a reason. And it's because that is where people are comfortable on this issue. They don't think it should be a form of birth control. And women talk like this in the groups. They're like, I'm pro-life. Do not think you should just have an abortion willy nilly. But like, you should be able to make these decisions with your doctor. I want to preserve this. And so Democrats have to go prosecute Republicans where they are at their most extreme, which, by the way, they have a lot of opportunities to do because people who are candidates for governor in a bunch of the swing states, like take Doug Mastriano, these are people who do not believe that there should be um, exceptions in the in the in the rape incest, life of the mother. And so, if you can prosecute it on those terms, on where the Republicans are the most extreme ones, banning a um, the the morning after pill or or, or um, regulating birth control in a tighter way, that puts them on their back feet. That is an offense strategy. Otherwise, you're gonna what you don't want to be is defending your own position like your own sort of extreme flank.
0: So there is sentiment within the Democratic caucus that uh, Joe Biden Uh, needs to, or the federal government needs to go really bold. And one, he just endorsed uh, suspending the filibuster. By the way, it's not his choice. It's the Senate's choice. But suspending the filibuster to codify Roe, I think that maybe has a a lot of different implications. But some of the things that they're advocating that they need to endorse are things like packing the courts and uh, allowing abortions on federal lands, which a lot of uh, experts, I think all the credible experts I've heard, say oh that would be a terrible idea because it would open women and doctors to prosecution how dangerous is an endorsement by the democratic establishment of some of the boldest which would be the words the activists would say boldest efforts on abortion how uh, damaging to the prospects of democrats running in swing states or in seats they could win were the national party and a white house to endorse those policies
1: extremely damaging and it goes back to this what i'm talking about about you got to prosecute the other side on its extremes and if if Democrats run to their own extremes, Republicans will um, destroy them for it. Number one, number two, they're not very good ideas. I I just got to say, like, they may be bold, but they're not good. Um, And if Democrats want to be bold, um, they should do some they should do popular things like why not right now put up a bill uh, and say, like, we are going to make it so that uh, people can have access to Plan B um, and we are we're going to codify that put make Republicans vote on that make Republicans vote on on access to birth control. Like do federal uh, legislation that is popular, that would be extremely it would be impossible for republic. Some Republicans will vote against it, maybe even lots. will. but like you can pass those things. You can do actual good. You can safeguard actual things that women need that are under threat right now because of this ruling and because Republicans are on offense in certain places. Um, and like that to me is a legislative offense plan. Federal lands like can you imagine just like pop up tents um, and like or like pop up clinic? Like I don't that doesn't sound safe to me. That doesn't sound smart to me. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't. Yeah, think those- well,
0: even even if they're the most advanced clinics that we could uh, that the government could establish once they leave those federal lands, where are they? They're in Texas right. or they're in Wyoming or they're in a place that necessitated the building on federal lands. Plus, the Hyde Amendment wouldn't allow it. It really is a terrible idea. I agree with you there. Well, what about the Democrats, National Democrats, the Senate? We have a carve out for the filibuster in my hypothetical. They start legislating against the extremely unpopular parts of the Dobbs decision, like just the rape in incest exception, they pass a law that say you can't ban abortion to for a woman who's been raped. That might pass, but the theory is once you do that and you take away the most horrific parts that would motivate a voter—you're hurting yourself because then voters who maybe identify as pro-life but don't like the extremism of the ruling would say, "Well, the most objectionable parts are now taken care of."
1: Yeah, this is a complicated one. I, like I agree because um, look, I think that uh, I think it's a good idea because I think it's just important for the safety of women to pass laws that say in the case of rape, incest, and life of the mother. Right. But you're right that the Planned Parenthood and a lot of the activist groups can be like, no, now you've taken the parts that are the most socially acceptable, that are the main reasons that we can get the public on board with um, with having abortion rights, uh, far-reaching abortion rights. You know, you're taking them off the table and that's bad politics. And, you know, I, I get frustrated sometimes between people making political judgments at the the expensive judgments that are really going to help people um mm-hmm. and i think at this moment where um and again I, i'm just more on the life of the mother because i think that is a broad category for people um i think there should they should be doing things to to protect um those because it's it's so scary to think that those decisions would be taken away from a woman and her doctor
0: what about packing the supreme court so here's one where i really on the one hand, I think like everyone, maybe you less so than everyone. I'm very suspicious of polls and focus groups, and I don't want them to dictate policy. And I know you say they're just a tool to uh, to glean information, and information is good. Okay, stipulated. But on something like packing the court, I would. I'm very deferential to what the polls say. You know, to me, uh, sure there are the uh, implications that Democrats win, they pack the court, that Republicans pack it even more. Fine, but. Right now, it seems an extremely unpopular idea, and that's all I need to know. But if it becomes a popular idea, I'd be willing to at least entertain it. Um, Do you look at that issue a little differently, or do you say this will never become a popular idea?
1: Uh, I don't think it's going to become a popular idea. I'm also just against it. So, I mean, this is now I'm talking about me. Forget focus groups, forget polls. I'm against it. Um, And I think that there are ways to reform the court. I'm not anti-court reform, um, but I think things like... You know, 18 year term limits are a much smarter way to lower the temperature on because yeah. um, that that's the that's the point. Part of part of the argument for packing the court, um, which, by the way, packing the court, not a great term. If you want it to be more popular, <laughs> like don't act like you're doing something to jam things in. That is a that's sort
0: liberating of- the court, <laughs> opening the court up, <laughs> so, part, a participatory yeah. court. Pack
1: the court. Just <laughs> it sounds um, it's uh, it sounds like, yeah, like, uh, yeah, right. Um, But, you know, I, I think imposing term limits so that so that what you have is like you take the temperature down. Like, so every court appointment isn't like a blood sport. I think there's a lot of the dynamics that are messed up that could be solved with very um, nonpartisan, much more sort of graceful and prudential ways of sort of limiting uh, the court. And I think term limits is a is a much better idea than packing them. The packing that. Gosh, can you imagine just like the, the, the and it's look, I'm not I'm not huge on eliminating the filibuster either. Um, and I think part of it is just, uh, you know, I've, I've watched uh, when when Harry Reid eliminated the filibuster for, uh, lower courts and then, um, for, for appointments and then Republicans then added on to that, the Supreme court, uh, what did it do? It created a much more polarized, uh, you know, back and forth. And I don't think that that's been good and I don't think it would be good. Um, but, and look, I, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm way more against packing the court than I am ending the filibuster. Cause so I think there's really good arguments in favor of ending the filibuster. I just haven't quite gotten there yet, but yeah.
0: And the filibuster, of course, is a relic of uh, the Wilson administration where the size of the court, though it has increased and shrunk within a narrow band over the years, is less uh, is less of a recent phenomenon. I want to go back to one thing, the analysis of it's not just Roe versus Wade has been overturned. It was we got a little time to be to get used to it. I wonder if that will have any impact on people's attitudes at During the focus group that you conducted when only the draft opinion was known, you talked about that spark moment getting diluted where everyone is absorbing the implications, but not in a way that's so certain where everyone is in the streets. Well, now not everyone, but a lot of people are in the streets. So do you think the moment that we had is playing out exactly as it would if there was no leak to begin with?
1: I don't actually. I think it did have an impact, the leak. Um, I I think it did uh, dilute. I think a lot of people knew it was coming. I think a lot of people had their arguments prepped. I think that if there had been a moment where the Supreme Court had just handed down a row reversal um that moment impact of people sort of like rushing out angrily um and uh potentially you know having a, a big demonstration um would have been bigger. It's a counterfactual that I can't prove, but I there is there is something that happens when people have time to adjust to an idea. You just saw a lot of people like, well, we expected this. Now it doesn't mean that it's not still having a big impact and that the people who were against it are against it. I just think it changes the it just changes the way that the impact
0: manifested. So the headwinds for democrats were was the economy and inflation. Even if inflation is the dominant concern Is it the case that everyone with that dominant concern or the vast majority of people with that dominant concern are anti-Democrat, are favoring Republicans on inflation? Because with abortion, the higher that comes as a concern, that probably cuts 95 to 5 where the people with abortion as a concern are going to vote.
1: Yeah, I just don't think there's as many people that have abortion as a top concern as there are people who have the economy as a top concern. And let me just say it's Mm -hmm. not just inflation. Like the thing that I hear and the reason that you're seeing what I so when in 2020, I focused I I am an anti-Trumper from the beginning. And so the reason I started doing the focus groups was I was like, all right, how do we persuade the people who. Are Republicans, but don't love Trump. Like, how do I get my soft GOP guys and get them to vote for Biden? And, and a lot of them did. It was definitive. It was definitive. Um, in a lot of these swing states, you had people who you left the top of the ticket blank, or they voted for Biden. Um, but those swing voters have really backslid um, since the 2020 election, and a lot of it is COVID they did not like the way that the democrats were handling covid they thought that the restrictions went on for too long and we didn't return to normal um it's the supply chain stuff but people just like life sucks 20 percent more than it did before the pandemic. Right. Like people can't get things that they want. Um, Inflation's out of control. Interest rates are going up. Like people have this general sense of precariousness, like things are not looking good. And so I think that has caused a lot of people to kind of backslide. And I think that Republicans were looking at a really dominant year. Uh, But I do think there's been a couple of conditional changes. And it's it's not just Roe. It is you add Roe to the guns. And the shootings that we have seen, and then you add them most specifically to the candidates that are emerging in these from these Republican primaries. Um, we're not through them all yet. We don't know who everybody's going to be, but the fact that it is Doug Mastriano and Herschel Walker, potentially with Eric Greitens, potentially with Carrie Lake, um, and a bunch of other people that as as the as the As people zero in on all of these candidates uh, in 2022, once the primaries are over, you're going to just see how bananas they are like they are. Stop the steal Trumpy lunatics. And when you add those in and so that, you know, Trump has been endorsing terrible candidates uh, and it's putting a lot of races that shouldn't be in play in play.
0: And Sarah will be back tomorrow to talk about her general philosophy of focus groups and how she thinks the January 6th meetings might affect the election. And now the spiel. Over the weekend, the president of the United States used the bully pulpit, meaning Twitter, to post, quote, My message to the companies running gas stations and setting prices at the pump is simple. This is a time of war and global peril. Bring down the price you are charging at the pump to reflect the cost you're paying for the product and do it now. I'm sure Sitco, Saudi Aramco, all those uh, Middle Eastern OPEC-based oil companies are saying, oh, now is the time of global peril. Thank you for telling me this. Days later, or a day later, a regional lobbying group taunted the president for making his demands. The U.S. Oil and Gas Association said, working on it, Mr. President. In the meantime, have a happy fourth and please make sure the White House intern who posted this tweet registers for Econ 101 for the fall semester. They were speaking in owns. OWNS They owned the president, which is to say they were speaking in the Argo of Twitter. The president got dunked on and we all went back to grilling with propane, which is selling for four dollars a gallon now. Why would the president put out such a weak argument? When asked about that argument in today's White House briefing, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre committed to it.
1: And when you look at wholesale oil prices as well, they've declined about 15 percent. And so retail gas prices, however, have only declined just about 3 percent over the same time period uh, as we have seen uh, with crude oil prices and the uh, wholesale gas prices.
0: Well, those are the facts, as is the fact that profit seeking characterizes all businesses at all times, not only during price spikes. Jean-Pierre concluded.
1: Consumers should not should not be the first to pay and the last to benefit.
0: Consumers are actually the last to pay after the petroleum is located, extracted, processed, and shipped. But they've benefited as they've always benefited, being able to utilize vehicles which rely on internal combustion engines. And if there was such price inefficiency, one oil company could decide, hey, I'll undercut my competitors and make less money. And in the long run, it will help me out. Maybe not even for goodwill, just in terms of supply and demand. The thing is no matter the prices that the oil companies charge, the demand is still there. The strategy of let us use moral suasion to get the world's largest companies to voluntarily be less profitable seems kind of like a loser, except then Jeff Bezos weighed in with his quote, ouch, inflation is far too important a problem for the White House to keep making statements like this. It's either straight ahead misdirection Straight ahead misdirection. Or deep misunderstanding of basic market dynamics. And then Jean-Pierre owned him, as is the way of Twitter, quote, It's not surprising you think oil and gas companies using market power to reap record profits at the expense of the American people is the way our economy is supposed to work. Shouldn't do the hand clap emoji in between each word, but my God, it read like that. And now the White House has picked the fight they want. The public doesn't think gas stations are going to lower prices just to be nice, but they might think Jeff Bezos is a dick. Actual inflation is a phenomenon that can be affected by adjusting interest rates, maybe, and really very little else that's inside the White House's control. But a fight with Jeff Bezos at least presents the image of a White House fighting. And so some dopamine was momentarily injected into our national noggin, and we all went back to our $5 gallon of gasoline, except for California. where they are paying $6 a gallon. But don't worry, Governor Gavin Newsom and the state legislature has a plan for that. KABC LA has details. Well, a new round of money will be sent to Californians, this time to help with inflation. The governor and lawmakers finally came to an agreement after months of debating the best form of relief. What they decided was dubbed in the state house and the governor's office as "quote the inflation relief package." It's tax rebates totaling 17 billion dollars. Nine and a half billion of it goes to either gas relief, depending on how they portray it, or just in general inflation relief. Couples making less than $150,000 who file their taxes together would receive $700, and then the amount goes down as couples make more, but everyone's entitled to a few hundred bucks. Here are some headlines. San Francisco Chronicle. California stimulus. When are state residents getting their inflation relief checks? Here's everything you need to know about the stimulus. LA Times focused on the part about those paychecks headline. How much do I get from California's $9.5 billion gas tax relief plan? When will I get it? (laughs) ABC summarized the news you can use coverage of the initiative. Viewers want to know, am I eligible?
1: Chris, the format is similar to the last few rounds of stimulus checks in that it will go to people who have filed taxes.
0: Notice the word she used, not the word Taxes, the word stimulus. Chronicle used this also. This is, in fact, an economic stimulus. And do you know, ask any economist, what does the economy definitely not need right now? The answer is stimulus. This program will give people money and it will likely have inflationary effects. Perhaps those effects will be counteracted by the good the program does. Perhaps people will put their money towards paying the rent or towards savings. That's great, especially if they could get a good enough rate to outpace inflation. Perhaps... Something I thought of, Californians, buttressed by these new funds, will shop online, and inflation will only go up a little in California, but maybe a lot in Arizona, shipping the goods to California. But the idea overall is the exact opposite of what most economists would say is the way to lower inflation. And one source, one prominent in-state source, thought to call economists David Lightman of the Sacramento Bee actually contacted economists. The resulting story was headlined, experts warn California's inflation relief, in scare quotes, good, could actually send high prices even higher. And what he found, called six economists, good job, Lightman, five of them said, yeah, yeah, stimulus, this stimulus could well prompt more inflation. And this belongs in the, of course it could file. Right now, Lightman is the sole occupant of that file outside some of the national business press like Bloomberg, but also for the most part, including almost all of the national business press. When do I get my stimulus check? Which, by the way, if I was a Californian, I'd definitely be asking. And you got to realize that given the choice between the good politics of putting money in people's pockets and the good policy of... I don't know, hoping a billionaire objects to your ineffectual pressure campaign on Twitter, it's clear you'd rather be in Gavin Newsom's position than Joe Biden's. Maybe in a couple of years, Gavin Newsom would, too. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara ably assistant produces The Gist from a whole new state, Oklahoma. Okay. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist, holding down the media bureau. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. She signs for every bill of lading the company receives. The Gist is presented in collaboration with AdvertiseCast, Lipson's AdvertiseCast. In fact, advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. And thanks for listening.